Welcome to the Badass Breastfeeding Podcast. This is Diane, your lactation consultant. And I'm Abby, the Badass Breastfeeder. And today's episode is brought to you by Sheila Darling Coaching. Sheila Darling is a social worker, certified hypnotherapist, and mindfulness meditation teacher and could be your start to a more peaceful life. And today's episode is also brought to you by Original Sprout. Original Sprout carries safe, effective, and pediatrician-tested shampoos, conditioners, styling, and body care products produced and packaged in California, USA. Um, And we'll hear more from our sponsors later, Um, but please head to badassbreastfeedingpodcast.com and check out our sponsor page if you need anything. Check there and see if you can give any of our sponsors your business, because they do make this podcast possible. And while you're there... Scroll down and enter your email address and get episodes sent straight to your inbox every Monday. Uh, And now Diane has our review of the week. Absolutely. It is from, I want to say this right because it's adorable, Nebatot. I think that's very cute. And she says, we're keeping it real. I'm not a breastfeeding mama yet, but I work with them every day in the NICU and started listening to this podcast to get an idea of how my patients are thinking and feeling and how I can best support breastfeeding moms of premature and special care infants. I've binged almost every episode at this point and love keeping up with all the relevant new information. I've learned so much about lactation and breastfeeding just by listening to this podcast than I did in nursing school or my years working as a nurse. From evidence-based information about alcohol consumption, comfort nursing, and co-sleeping, the hosts of this podcast keep it real. I recommend this to any pregnant mama or new mom, or even if you're just interested in learning more about breastfeeding and how to support the breastfeeders in your life. Oh my God. That is the coolest thing ever. Isn't it? Yeah. Just spreading that to all the joy to the, to those little NICU babies. Oh my God. I know. So amazing. And all the people there and being able to kind of intercept the misinformation as it's coming through and being able to give the people and the parents there like just good, helpful information. That's amazing. It is. It is amazing. And, you know, one of the things that we see coming out of, you know, healthcare institutions and, you know, uh, doctor's offices and all of that stuff is it might have been evidence-based information 25 years ago. Right. We need the relevant information that's happening right now. And that's what we try to bring you because that's what we're interested in. Like, we don't care about what, you know, great aunt Sally did. 30 years ago. We need to know what's happening now. And I love that she is, you know, working to get this information so that she can pass it on. And that's amazing. So thank you so much for that. You're doing so much for the moms and the babies that need you. I mean, that's fantastic. So, and she put that on iTunes. So, um, that really helps us a lot when you can put the reviews on iTunes, but if you can't, you can absolutely send us an email at, Badass Breastfeeding Podcast at gmail.com. Um, and we would get it there too. So thank you. It's awesome. And now, oh, we got a great episode. Hold on to your seats because Tracy oh. Castles from Evolutionary Parenting is back. Back. She's <laughs> awesome. Baby. We're, we're talking about SIDS and let's get to it because it is a killer interview. Welcome, Tracy back to the Badass Breastfeeding Podcast. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me back. I've been waiting for my invite again, so. Yeah, you're the first person that we've actually had on twice. Oh, really? Cool. Oh, you're the, you're the president of the Two Timers Club. (laughs) I love it. I will take that role. That's uh, one I will relish. Thank you. 
<laughs> um, you are uh, the badass behind evolutionary parenting. Mm-hmm. You have you have a PhD in developmental psychology, right? Yes, yes. And my master's is? is clinical. Yeah. So my MA is okay. clinical psych, and my PhD is developmental. I kind of switch gears a little bit there. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, and uh, we would. Well, last time you were here, we talked about uh, nighttime breastfeeding, mm-hmm. and that episode has become one of our most like top five downloaded episodes of our 180 whatever episodes we have. <laughs> That's awesome. But it's something that I, I think, obviously, badass breastfeeding, people breastfeed at night. This is something that is so central to the breastfeeding relationship, I think. It is. And I, and I told my husband, I said, I said, I was interviewing um, Tracy Castles from Evolutionary Parenting, you know, on the podcast saying he was like, man, we've been reading that blog and looking to that person for parenting, you know, resources since Jack was a baby and he's going to be 10. <laughs> and he's like, that's amazing. It's crazy to think sometimes I go back to the time of like, because I started it because Jack's almost the same age as Maddie, my daughter, and she's 10 and a bit now, like 10 and a half. And yeah, because it started with her. And I look at where she's at and it's sometimes insane to think that it's been so long that this has been going on. I mean, I still feel like I'm still finding my feet. So I don't know how slow a learner I am, but apparently (laughs) not the fastest learner on the planet. Remember social media back then? Oh, God. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it's still crazy, but I feel like that was just, God. It That was some insane, insane, like, Wild West. It was. It was. Yeah, that's the perfect analogy, the Wild West, because that's really what it felt like. And now, at least I also feel that, I don't know about you, but I think I'm able now to put it in perspective, as opposed to before where it felt like it was the be all and end all of how we shared information, how it got out there. I mean, it's still a medium now and it's a, it's an important one for a lot of families, but at least I feel mentally, I'm not kind of wondering what the hell is going on every day. Like I still question that, but in a different way, because I just don't understand technology. So there's (laughs) a different element there, but I don't feel as beholden to understand and master it like we used to. Right. Totally. Absolutely. I used to like read blogs and study like social media and how to like deal with whatever. (laughs) It was crazy. And you know, and, and I I think it like, it definitely, of course, led to this community Mm -hmm. and to the communities that we have, which is fantastic because I feel like it also leads to, it opens up new parents. I mean, there's parents, people that listen to this podcast are, I think mainly, not all, but mainly have new babies. Yeah. You know, when they're getting this information and they don't have to deal with the Wild West. I mean, they do because that's social media always, but not so much with the wondering where to go. Yeah, exactly. Wondering what's happening. Well, it's also funny because I go back and you think back to when we started because we were in touch very early and it feels like we lost a lot of people along the way. (laughs) There were so many different groups and it's been interesting to see it evolve and change over time. And it's, um, 
you know, there's always, I guess, new, new fads, new people talking about stuff, but it's kind of nice to have, you know, someone like you still there that I'm like, oh, no, Abby's still here. I'm not alone. I don't feel like the old geezer trying to do everything. Oh, my God. I do feel that way sometimes. I'm like, I'm old. Do I even relate to these new parents? But I mean, I feel like there's so much information that they need to have that's just universal. Well, exactly. And that's kind of how I try to feel too. And I mean, at least with breastfeeding, I still remind myself, I think I'm nearing the end, but, um, I've been breastfeeding for 10 years and oh my, my son is five still going and I never stopped. I didn't have a break. I was tandem both kids yeah. when, you know, he came along, but I'm like, I can tell he's nearing that end point. I think it's going to be this year at some point. And, uh, I'm like, okay, I at least still have that relevance going, <laughs> but it's yeah. like, oh, right. it's, I mean, it, yeah, this is the first year that I have not been a breastfeeder. Yeah. Where I actually but you have that knowledge. And that's what I think is so important in a culture where, especially with something like breastfeeding, it's still not normalized. People still don't have, you know, the grandmother, the mothers, the aunts that yeah, all did it, exactly. that they could turn to that in some ways are our, our old age and coming in, I feel adds a level of I don't want to use the word wisdom because I really don't ever feel very wise, yeah, but no. um, experience. experience yeah. 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 That people can relate to. And I think that's what a lot of new parents do need is an under someone who understands what it's like and has come out the other end to say, Hey, look, we're all still here. Our kids aren't entitled little brats because we breastfed right. on demand. Right. They sleep, even though they might've woken regularly, all these things we can speak to and have a level of, we're not in it in the moment, just telling you it's going to be fine. We've really been through it and come out the other side for it. That's true. That's great. I agree. Yeah. Well, today, yes, what we're switching gears a little bit for today, because one of the things that when Diane and I were talking about, uh, we love to talk about bed sharing. Bed sharing mm-hmm. is one of our topics besides obviously breastfeeding, but bed sharing is so intertwined and goes together with breastfeeding. That when we talk about it, we're often presented with this information that either a person or the person's family, you know, a listener says, I would love to bed share, but, you know, my husband is afraid of SIDS. My doctor says we shouldn't because it causes SIDS. And, you know, and I thought, and I'm thinking, we need to really break this down because this conversation Mm. is getting very, there's so much misinformation around this conversation as well. Mm Mm-hmm. It there is a lot that is missing from this. And I, you know, oh, I want to be generous and say that the people that are are saying this, the people that are giving this information do it because they care about babies, right? That the, everyone is concerned about the well-being of babies. But I'm going to start by saying that what I find fascinating, the more I look into this, the more I look into the research on it. Um, you know, we're seeing a shift towards more nuanced bed sharing messages in a lot of countries where I think they value infants and parents more. I think the the main push against bed sharing still comes from the U.S. And, yeah. you know, let's be honest, there are not a lot of baby or family friendly policies there. And I don't mean to sound negative, nilly, judgmental. Like I'm in Canada. We have a year's mat leave. We have, you know, a lot of supports in place for families. And so I still have to go to questioning even the motivation behind this harsh messaging because I don't think it is inherently about 
saving babies. Um, so I'll start with that. And the reason I say that, and part of it goes, and this is a quote that um, I absolutely love. So I don't know if any, hopefully your readers know Helen Ball. She's a researcher at Durham University, the founder of Basis, the baby sleep information source. She researches infant sleep, breastfeeding in particular with respect to it. Um, in, you know, she's an anthropologist, so across various cultural lenses. And when she's talking about SIDS, she had this quote that I loved and it says, the guidance you're given is around trying to prevent something that we don't understand the cause for. And I think it's so important to think about that, that when people say it causes SIDS, it, you know, bed sharing is unsafe. No, actually, we don't know what causes SIDS. We have no idea. And the basis of SIDS, right? (laughs) Exactly. It's sudden and it's unexplained. And it happens to an infant. That's yes. all we know, really. We exactly. have all these link. We have all these. We have all these suspicions. We have all these correlations. We have all these wonderings, but we don't know. Yeah. And, and when you're and when you're sleeping in a bed, and somebody who has been drinking or is on drugs rolls over onto a baby, that's not SIDS. No, that is not. And I think that's what's. So I think let's start by disentangling SIDS from suffocation. And which is what you're describing is there are infant deaths in parental beds. And of course there are, because as you described, we have a culture that um, we have a lot of drinking. We have smoking, which we know is a risk factor. Um, We have parents that are working full time, two, three jobs coming home and trying to take care of an infant because they don't have appropriate paid leave. There's a lot of things in place that create hazardous circumstances for infant sleep. And the problem is if we don't disentangle those from SIDS or from something else, we're giving blanket recommendations that people aren't listening to. So even from a safety perspective, I mean, some will, and generally those people are at lower risk anyway, because the people that don't listen tend to be white, higher education, higher SES, they have resources that already protect their children. Mm-hmm. And so if we are just looking at them, well, that's not the full picture. The people that tend to ignore the messaging are those that may come from other cultures, those that may not have choices in the matter. I mean, we think about separate infant sleep spaces. Not everyone has access to resources for that. Um, you know, and there's so much going on that that disentangles. So we want to get away from you know, first understand that SIDS is unexplained. And there's, I think for people to understand that triple risk hypothesis surrounding it, which means that we tend to view in the research that there are three main features. So there's a genetic susceptibility, which is in part seemingly there, the babies, some babies just seem born, something tends to be wrong that is in their genes. And we don't necessarily know what. We know that some autopsies show that there can be brainstem abnormalities in some babies that may affect their ability to breathe um, or heart rate regulation, all these things. So that's in some cases. The second part is that there are certain features. There's this critical period um, of the environment that's going on. So it's not the environment like bed sharing, but there's a critical period time. So it seems to peak, as we know, between two to four months of age. And something's happening in development then. I know uh, Jim McKenna has argued that there's 
a shift in breathing at that point that may account for it. So infants in the first couple months actually have an autonomic breathing process. They just breathe kind of without their brain actively doing it or effortfully doing it. And around two to four months is when that shifts towards a more effortful system. And Mm. if something goes wrong as it's learning that system, you do get in a lot of babies some periodic breathing where they might stop for a bit and then the brain recognizes oxygen desaturation. And so it gets kids breathing again. So that's a more common occurrence. So you have this age factor too, but then you have what's thought to be this third piece. And this is where bed sharing comes in, in the research, which is it is some environmental stressor is what we think. And these are all based on studies that are not of the highest quality. Mm. Um, so, but when we look at stressors, you know, you will probably most people hear of bed sharing as like the biggest, but the other one would be things like sleeping on one's belly, right? So that prone sleeping mm-hmm. position um, is really important versus supine. So all these things kind of go towards what we want infants to do. So that's that whole put your baby to sleep on their back campaign. Um, that That's, you know, those are the three factors going in. And it's that third where bed sharing came up in the literature on SIDS for a bit. And so we'll get to, to suffocation later because that's different. But as Helen so aptly put is we're trying to understand something we don't know the cause for. So to get there, we start looking at all these different factors. How do we understand that? And bed sharing cropped up in a lot of studies. And one of the things I always caution people to remember is these studies are highly flawed. And it is so hard to make people realize how bad. But one thing I I found out recently is that the NHS, I think it's the NHS in the UK, has assessments of the validity of evidence for specific policies. And they reviewed the evidence on bed sharing causing SIDS as a link between bed sharing and SIDS. And across all the studies, they found that the evidence level was very poor. It was the lowest level of quality that that you had in terms of evidence. So I think it's really important to remember that when you hear studies say this, that, the other, they're really not very valid studies. So that's, I think, a really key piece for people to remember here. That's really interesting. And that's uh, pretty important (laughs) when we're (laughs) making these sweeping, um, you know, making these sweeping national, international uh, recommendations based on, you know, things that are not relevant. Yeah. And that are not even, you know, well done or the the, the findings are not. We don't even know if the findings are true. It's and. It's not surprising. I mean, I've looked at this myself when I I did a piece on why there's this conflicting information on bed sharing risk. And, you know, it really comes down to some of the the measures in these studies are so poorly addressed. And really, it's in the way that we talk about safe bed sharing versus unsafe bed sharing. And unfortunately, in a lot of cultures where it's just this don't bed share, there is no distinction between the two. And there ought to be because we know that there are certain circumstances that make bed sharing more hazardous. And it's funny because I see some people on the side of pro bed sharing that like to ignore that as well under the guise of, but we've always slept with our babies. 
so therefore, how could sleeping with your baby be dangerous? And Mm -hmm. yes, we always slept with our babies, not in this modern environment. And if you look back across human history and you look at other cultures where bed sharing is incredibly common, sleep setups, sleep environments are very different. So you even just think about the adult bed. Our mattresses can be incredibly soft, which is not the case uh, in a lot of Asian cultures where bed sharing is quite the norm, they often sleep on futons or harder mattresses that don't allow for infants to kind of get sucked in, rolled in, and, and end up suffocating with their face in the mattress. They don't yeah. have tons oh of God. pillows. I had, a, I had a Japanese boyfriend in high school. His bed was like a tiny mattress on top of this piece of wood. And I was like, <laughs> I cannot sleep here. How do you sleep on this? It's crazy, right? It's like it's a like... totally normal thing. It was just, there was no give. There was no nothing. It's true. It's totally very firm. Exactly. And that's, but that keeps babies safe, right? You think about yeah. a crib mattress, they're very hard. And the right. reason for that is to keep them from falling in. So we do have to be cognizant that we have a lot of these different environmental things, just like drinking and certain drugs. We have medications that cause drowsiness that certainly didn't exist 500, 1,000, 20,000 years ago. This was not something that was commonly found around. Smoking. um, I know there's been tobacco use for years in a lot of indigenous cultures. However, their tobacco use is very different than our modern cigarettes, right? It's not necessarily, therefore, the tobacco that's the problem. It's all the other shit basically that's in it yeah those additives yeah exactly so we have to be aware that yes our environment is different and so when we start talking about bed sharing it's not the same across individuals it's not the same family to family and looking at those external factors that we know impact sleep is really important to understanding the research because A lot of studies, they'll say, well, they accounted for drinking, they accounted for smoking, they accounted for all these things. How they accounted for them is some of the biggest problems in some of these earlier studies. So I know I have read and reviewed ones where they counted any drinking in a 24-hour period prior to sleep um, and found, of course, that drinking did not predict any increased risk of death or suffocation. Well, yeah, because if you have a glass of wine at lunch, chances are that's not impacting the way in which you sleep with your baby overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, you know, there's this big issue there that how we look at these things, smoking, for example, is who smokes. For a long time, there was no assessment of if any parent smoked, it counted. Well, babies don't often always sleep next to a partner. And so if it's the partner that smokes, and we do see this in research with Asian families where there's a very high rate of male smoking in a lot of Asian cultures, um, you're not seeing an effect. It's if the person who is sleeping next to the baby Mm -hmm. is smoking that you see this stronger effect. So when we look across these studies for years, we've seen this just abysmal (laughs) recording of these other variables. And so... It's forced us to, I mean, it forced researchers to kind of say, hey, wait a second, there's something else going on. We've got a better look at this. But from a policy perspective, everyone's still pulling the same, no, we just can't do it, that it's bed sharing is inherently dangerous. That's the problem. And it's just not, right? Like this is, this is it. We don't have evidence of that. Right. And when it comes to, to like, 
to SIDS. And SIDS is obviously a very horrible thing. But SIDS happens anywhere the baby sleeps. Yeah. Right? It's not it's not correlated, or I don't know this. Is it correlated to any particular sleep environment? Or if you look at actual real research, SIDS is happening across the board. It's well, so there is an increased risk of SIDS. Some studies do find it, as I said, with bed sharing. We question, you know, the validity of those as we saw they sure. are considered very low quality. Um, they do tend to happen in car seats more. That upright mm. reclining seems to lead to SIDS because it's hard for them to say suffocation uh, because they're not suffocating in the car seat, right. but there does seem to be something about that upright, the head tilting down that is linked to a greater risk of SIDS, but we don't see big campaigns telling people not to put their kids to right. sleep in the car seat, right? That's not what we're seeing here. Certainly not pictures of babies with knives next to them yeah, um, in right. that environment. You know, one of the more interesting findings, and this is why I say I find it so hard to say the care, like the issue is about saving babies, because mm. one of the risk factors that fascinates me, because it does come up above and beyond just the positioning of the baby and everything is actually daycare. And so you're mm. looking at, at crib or cot sleeping at that point. Um, but for young babies in this risk factor, the first couple days, sometimes up to the first week, is considered an independent risk for SIDS. And it's thought to be that when we talk about these environmental stressors, that the stress of separation from a caregiver of a new environment of perhaps being cared for for an extended period by someone you don't have an attachment to is a stressor enough for some of these kids that the proportion of kids one would expect to die of SIDS in daycare based on who's in it, the base rates, et cetera, it is much higher than that. And this is even when you account for sleeping positioning, safe sleep environments, everything like that. So you know, we talk about these environmental stressors, that's one, but we don't see people saying, hey, maybe kids shouldn't be entering daycare in the two to four month range, that maybe we should be offering families paid leave to stay home with their baby during this higher risk or this vulnerability period. And so, yeah, so I guess there's, there are certain situations where, again, we see a correlation, but because the research only tells us that we see more kids dying in this than we might expect or that don't, it's, um, it's really hard to still make causal implications, right? So right. is it the car seat? Well, in car seat safety, yes, we think there may be something because we don't have plausible other explanations. It's not like parents put their kid in a car seat and the parents drinking would affect how the kid sleeps in a car seat. Um, but other than that, you know, we still have to be cautious about the interpretation because we don't know the cause. So what is it about the car seat that causes infants to have a higher risk of SIDS? We assume it's the positioning of the head that that curled in the head down, but we don't know. And we'll be right back with more from Tracy Castles from Evolutionary Parenting in just a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by Sheila Darling Coaching. A new baby can add intense amounts of anxiety and depression. No sleep, feeling overwhelmed, looking at your sweet baby and wondering how this tiny human can cause so much chaos. The transition to parenthood is an entire identity shift you weren't prepared for. If one more person tells you that this time goes by so quickly, you might just punch them in the face. 
Transitioning to a new family member takes patience, self-compassion, and support. Sheila Darling Coaching can be that professional support person that Diane and I are always saying there is no shame in getting. Sheila Darling is a social worker, certified hypnotherapist, and mindfulness meditation teacher, and could be your start to a more peaceful life. Head to SheilaDarling.com to schedule your consultation today and mention the Badass Breastfeeding Podcast when scheduling your consultation and receive 10% off of a coaching package. And today's episode is also brought to you by Original Sprout. Original Sprout carries safe, effective, and pediatrician-tested shampoos, conditioners, styling, and body care products produced and packaged in California, USA. The leave-in conditioner's lightweight formula is made with nourishing emollients and arnica for split ends, making it ideal for detangling and eliminating frizz from damaged hair. The Miracle Detangler is, a per- is perfect to making combing hair easier for babies, toddlers, children, and anyone with long hair. The Rosemary can help prevent lice. All of Original Spout's project- products are paraben and phthalate-free, vegan and cruelty-free. Their proprietary formulas contain nourishing extracts from fruits, vegetables, and flowers that the whole family can enjoy. They are not just for babies anymore. Check out the entire line at OriginalSprout.com and use code BADASS for 25% off your purchase. That's OriginalSprout.com, code BADASS, 25% off of your purchase. Um, And these sponsors and their promo codes can be found in our show notes under this episode at BadassBreastfeedingPodcast.com. Our show notes uh, will also include further information about things we talked about in this episode. And at BadassBreastfeedingPodcast.com, you will also find breastfeeding resources, all of our other episodes, and information about scheduling your very own one-on-one online consultation, lactation consultation with Diane. And now we're going to get back to our interview with Dr. Tracy Castles. I remember reading somewhere, I think it was the La Leche League um, Safe, safe sleep seven, yeah, thing, um, which was really interesting, and and it was something. It was just recently, and it was something I'd never heard before. Um, it said that in the United States, um, these really extreme bed anti bed sharing campaigns and stuff like that. Um, you know, there's there's certain communities that are experiencing. I can't remember if they said SIDS or if they were just saying bed sharing issues or problems or, or communities that where there are has heavy drug use and heavy drinking, uh-huh. um, that these communities, oh, they're, so they're like poor communities, may, maybe black communities. I can't remember exactly what it said. Um, but the gist of it was there's these communities that are dealing more with infant death situations, um, that, are hard to reach, which I think is funny because yeah, hard to reach because you don't, nobody provides these communities any resources or anything. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so because these communities are hard to reach, they have decided to make these really extreme policies and recommendations to try to protect those babies. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I find that interesting because I think that Actually, when it comes down to it, not even when it comes down to it, very obviously and very openly, we don't value those communities. No. You know, as you were saying, we don't value babies. We don't value those people (laughs) at all. 
No. And this is that really speaks to work. A couple of years ago, uh, Cecilia Tamore and Melissa Bardic came out with a paper on syndemics theory, looking at bed sharing through a syndemics theory framework, which really looks at other systems around whether we can consider bed sharing a risk factor. And and they in looking at the data, looking at these sociological factors, I really hit home that, yeah, bed sharing is not a risk factor. What is a risk factor are all these other systems in place that disenfranchise and don't support communities that are already at risk because mm-hmm. of health-related issues, poverty-related issues, resources, support, et cetera. All of those things are missing. And that is the crux of where we're seeing problems. And it's why we see disproportionate numbers of SIDS or bed-sharing deaths in these communities. And mm-hmm. arguably... This hardline stance doesn't speak to them. It doesn't do anything but punish people for having a problem that was created by the culture and communities around them. By the very people who are giving those recommendations. Exactly. Yes. And when I say, that's what I say, when I say communities, I don't mean their community. I mean the rest of our society that set up these systems. And then we're saying, well, you have problems with the systems. And now we're going to punish you for not being able to overcome the systems we're putting you in, even though they go down to the very fabric of, you know, how you parent the DNA of your children. I mean, epigenetics tells us time and Mm -hmm. again that many of the issues that families face are passed down at a genetic, like at an epigenetic level. So when parents face systemic racism, poverty, um, lack of resources, trauma that all go into these communities that they're rampant there that affects their the expression of their dna and then that passes on to their children so their children are born primed for these adverse conditions and that affects their stress reactivity it affects their lifelong health unless we can set up systems that might once again shift the expression of these genes that's really interesting um and when I when when you think about what would what would the alternative be, what would a perfect system be? Um, I would, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me, what I you know what we talk about with breastfeeding information, bed sharing, these kinds of things, helpful information. You know, ideally, it would be coming from well everywhere, but also like the doctor's office, like mm-hmm. when you go when you have your baby. Um, and you're in the in the doctor's office where you are um, there for the very topic of your baby. What you you know, there's always these flyers sitting around, right? You know, with little yeah. like little little pamphlets. You yeah. Know, there's there's never any pamphlets that are like, oh, here's some information about safe bed sharing. Here's some information about yeah. breastfeeding. You know, I <laughs> I don't know. I feel like what you always see is like how you can get more tests. Hey, here's yeah. a disease to look out for because we have the test for it, which you can pay us to get. You know, exactly. I mean, we live in this ultra, I mean, in the United States, we live in this ultra, ultra capitalist nation yes. that only cares about making money and does not care at all about providing information to families. And this is, you know, I would say if you want to see a shift, so I'm going back to Helen Ball because I just absolutely adore the work they're doing there. But part of what they do at Basis, this baby sleep information source, because they are jointed with UNICEF and the Lullaby Trust, which is a charity in the UK, they are nonprofit. Um, 
they have created for health professionals webinars on how to talk about SIDS, how to talk about safe bed sharing, how to talk about infant sleep, and they have resources, free resources for professionals to use and modify for their own needs. So these are things that you can just steal from them, set up on your own, and be able to talk to families in a way that addresses these concerns, gets to their unique situations, um, and provide the type of support that's needed. And they're becoming more common in the UK. I know British Columbia here in Canada has it set up as well, where now the conversation around bed sharing is no longer, don't do it. It's okay, let's go through when you go meet with your um, health visitor, because you get in BC, you get a, a home visit from a nurse if you don't have a midwife. If you have a midwife, your midwife comes and does the home visits up to six weeks postpartum. And they will now sit and have this conversation. Okay, well, do you smoke? Are you on any medication? Are you drinking? Let's take a look at your bed. What's the setup here? And even down to the fact that, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot for families is people try and do the sidecar crib or, mm -hmm. or caught. I get stuck saying caught a lot because I, I deal with a lot of UK and Australian people, mm -hmm. but that sidecar situation. But what's acknowledged is if you're breastfeeding a baby back to sleep, I mean, I dare you to stay awake. Like, I don't know about you, but that is like one of the calmest, most, okay, and now I'm drifting off into sleep. So, Well, and isn't that the purpose? Exactly, right? That's supposed to elicit sleep in your baby and you, right? We're supposed yeah. to kind of sleep together with our kids. And so they have this situation to say, okay, let's look at the environment. Let's see how to make it safe for you and your baby. And so it's become a more nuanced discussion that they can have. So my point to this is saying, if you are a parent and you go into your doctor's office, go to it's basis.org. Um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, he said, we can put uh, it in the, we'll, we'll put it in the show in the notes. The yeah. Correct. The show notes there. Yeah. You can go there and basically bring a handout, something to your doctor and say, have you done this course? No. Well then I would really recommend you do because you know what? I don't want to talk about sleep until you've done it. Like this is for health professionals and you can advocate for yourself that way. You can say when you are up to date on the research, which is given by a group of professionals, academics who do this research and they've been awarded. Um, Helen Ball was at uh, the, they got a award from the Queen's thing. I'm so not British. I don't know what these awards are, but I know they went to me. <laughs> There's pictures of Helen with Prince Charles and Camilla oh getting this award, right? Like they have done amazing work and this is, and it's free. Doctors don't need to pay for it. So it fits within that capitalist framework of, look, you can get all this and you don't have to pay for it. I mean, it's a capitalist dream right? Like you're banking off the socialism in, in the UK to benefit the capitalist system here. But hey, at this stage, we'll take it. Yeah, I feel like that's very similar here with the breastfeeding information that doctors may or may not have, because <sighs> medical school certainly doesn't teach it to them. It's not a part of medical curriculum. Safe bed sharing sure as hell is not a part of medical curriculum. And if you run into a doctor like my pediatrician that we have now um, is very well versed in breastfeeding and bed sharing, and he's very supportive of it. But that's because he went on his own, on his own time to go research that. Yeah. And doctors they're not all going to do that. 
No. And you know, I think because that's the school's why. not teaching them and then they have no. to then they're like, oh, I gotta do all this extra stuff. Well, and that's what I love about Helen's basically it's a three and a half hour webinar kind of thing. You watch the videos, then there's an hour and a half Q&A that you can attend live if you have it. And it's geared towards health professionals. And so, yeah, there's a bit of time that you would need to put into it, but all the resources are there for you to take from. And it is a wealth of information that I think would benefit most doctors' clients, right? Like if you have new families that you're working with, having this information and having the tools, like they have the screener, all the questions you need to ask. You don't even need to think about it. You could print it up, hand it to your clients, have them fill it out in the waiting room, and you'll get a better idea as to how to talk about bed sharing with them. It's, I mean, it just... It's such a wonderful resource. So, and I think it's going to be up to patients going in and saying, hey, have you seen this? Would you do this? And getting more and more doctors in the U.S. to take part. I love that. I love that idea of having you guys going to this website, which we will figure out the exact one. <laughs> I know, it's, <laughs> it's one of those weird websites.uk.org. Like, <laughs> I don't know, I know. All those weird endings. Yeah. And you print that out and you, and if you're, you know, your doctor brings up stuff, well, you shouldn't be sharing a bed with your baby. Well, you shouldn't, you know, this and saying we can have this conversation when you get some formal information, formal education, formal information about this topic. Yeah. And to be fair, as parents, this is not limited to health professionals. I mean, it's geared towards them, but as parents, you are totally able to sign up. If you want to do this and these webinars, they're not the webinars themselves. The resources are free. The webinar was 50 pounds, I think. So it's not a huge expense. It's not something for those of you don't know, that's money. British pounds. Like dollars, but the pounds. My son, my son, we were watching the British Wipeout, that show Wipeout. Yeah. And it was the British one. He was like, the pa- the um the prize is ten thousand pounds. And my son goes, Ten thousand pounds of what? <laughs> and I, I was like, No, no, no. Wait. <laughs> That's what they call their money there. That's yeah. Sorry. It's money. <laughs> but it's and I think compared to the US dollar. It would probably work out to about 60 bucks, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I know Canadian was a lot more than that, but that's our dollar problem. Um, <laughs> but that is, it's really not expensive and it is such a valuable course when they offer them. And you can just sign up on basis to be notified via emails when they run them. And I, I can guarantee it is so worth your health professionals doing them. And it's so worth parents, if you have the time and you have the resources, which I acknowledge not everyone does, but mm-hmm. if you do, I think you having that knowledge would also empower people to talk to their health professionals with more. Because when you go in and someone says, don't bed share, and you say, actually, you know what? I actually am well aware of the research. And did you know that in the UK, the quality of evidence for this is considered basically piss poor? And so let's have a conversation about safety because I am, you know, not drinking alcohol before bed, although I may enjoy my glass of wine at lunch or whatnot. I'm not smoking. I don't have a soft mattress or this or that. I don't have pillows. I have set up my bed in a way that is safe for my baby and myself. And especially if you're breastfeeding, you know, this is another issue we should talk about. But the relationship between breastfeeding duration and bed sharing is there's a relationship to how well it facilitates the breastfeeding relationship. And it may not be causal, but it's certainly a relationship there. And we know when you go back to the SIDS issue, 
Breastfeeding is a protective factor against SIDS. For whatever reason, it halves the risk of SIDS. So, you know, you're balancing out bed sharing, which of course, if you listen to the the poor studies, they say it can be upwards of four, five, six times the risk. But, you know, and in that case, it might outweigh breastfeeding. But really, we now know that it's not. It's just unsafe bed sharing. And when we look at safe bed sharing, there really doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that it increases the risk of SIDS. So if you're breastfeeding as well, then you have that added protection. And it's worth noting here, I think one of the problems about dead babies is that no one wants them at all. We want a guaranteed solution that says we will never have this because there will be people who bed share safely, who breastfeed, who do everything right, and their baby dies of SIDS. And it is such a hard thing to accept because we feel like if we do it right, it should be fine. But when we go down to the fact that as we start to go back to that triple risk hypothesis, sometimes we just have, you know, whether it's a brainstem abnormality or something else that goes on, you know, we can't control everything. We can't control all of the environments. We can only do our best. And, you know, I love how Jim McKenna, often when he talks about it, will say to parents, you have to ask yourself, if the worst happened, how would you feel? about yes. your choice. And yes, I, love that. I know personally, I can only speak to myself, but I, I thought about that. Like I always planned on bed sharing. It was just, that was part of my, you know, my mom did with my sister. So, and she's so much younger than me that that was like, in terms of formative learning, seeing that. Um, but I, I always thought, yeah, you know what? I would want my baby knowing that they were with me and loved and cuddled and supported at all times. I, that was, that for me would far outweigh the devastation of being in bed. And I think knowing the research means I wouldn't be that person that says, oh, what did I do? And that's why I think knowing this research and why I say for parents, if you want to take that webinar with Helen Ball and, and Charlotte Russell and all of the team over at Basis there, it is that knowledge can be invaluable in you making your decision-making because it allows you to feel confident in the choices. So you don't doubt if the worst were to ever happen and, you know, God forbid it it never would for families, but it does that you would feel confident in what you did in providing. And, and this goes to, you know, another issue that all plays into this. There's the breastfeeding is what kind of mammals are we? And, we're precocial animal, precocial animal, precocial mammals. I can't say it like say that five times fast. Um, <laughs> what that means, though, for people is that our babies are born expecting constant contact, expecting regular feeds, and predominantly they expect breastfeeding. But of course, we know not everyone can breastfeed, and there's but they expect regular feeds. Period, and they expect this relationship to continue for quite a while, and when we violate that, that can be highly stressful for them. And so we want to balance these these safe measures that we seem to put in place. It's like sleep training. We treat sleep training and we treat bed sharing or rather solitary sleep as things that should protect our, our infants, but we're ignoring their psychological well-being, their species expectant behaviors, and these other features that are central to their their ability to thrive. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And I think when you go back to the beginning, it doesn't actually protect them. Well, that's it. Yeah. We're not isolating them. 
Yes. And that is, and it would be safe to use a sidecar cot or a bassinet next to the bed if you have factors that you know, are not modifiable for you. If there's, right. you know, yeah. I've worked with families where, you know, in one case, I know a mother was, she was in a wheelchair. She had no control over her lower limbs at night. So there's a lot of periodic movement that could be dangerous. And so they use that next to the bed, the bassinet next, and then the sidecar caught because that enabled everyone's safety. That was not a situation where there was a safe bed sharing option. And there will be those cases. Some people are on medications they have to take for their well-being. And you should never sacrifice that because this sidecar caught, especially the sidecar caught, is found in research to be equally beneficial to breastfeeding and everything right? It is, you have that proximity, you can get your hand onto your baby easily, which reassures them that you're there. It's easy to kind of bring them close for breastfeeding and then put them back if you don't fall asleep. That's the one little side part there. But lots of people manage to get them kind of in a breastfeeding position and then move them back over. Um, All of these things enable that safe environment. And it's something that I think too many families kind of because we're not talking about it, we're not giving those options and we're not having these necessary discussions. Right. Because there are families that shouldn't bed share. Like we're not saying that everyone should bed share and oh my God, forget all the warnings. Like, no, we need to understand the warnings and you need to understand whether they apply to you or not. And that's exactly what doctor's offices are missing. And exactly what, again, going back, that basis information source would give them the questions and the tools to ask, to go down and Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just saying to go down and then basically identify what are your risk factors and then how do we work on it? Do we work on quitting smoking? Do we work on substance abuse problems? Do we look, are there better medications that might allow you to bed share and treat whatever it is that you're using medication for? These are questions that should fit with this holistic view of health. Yeah. And I love the, I love the idea of parents taking advantage of, of, of gaining these resources, however you do it. Um, because you actually don't, and I think it's important to remember, you don't need your doctor's permission to bed share. You don't need <laughs> yes. to convince your doctor that you can bed share and then have them give your approval. They are not mm-hmm. the boss of you. They are somebody who works for you, who should have good information. And if they don't, It's great if you want to take the time to try to educate them, but also that's not your job. And if you don't have the, you know, the energy or the, you know, if you don't feel like doing that because you're dealing with having a new baby, (laughs) you know, then you gain this information and you go about your business, you know, and that's, that's having this information can empower you to make this decision and to be safe with your children without, you know, dealing with the very uneducated medical system around you. And I think it's worth saying sometimes, although we say to parents who are in it to advocate for yourself, sometimes I think it's up to us who are out of it, but still seeing these doctors, right? We still go to say, hey, you know what? This isn't my problem anymore, but I'm going to share with you this information because right now it's not my battle, but I'm going to bring it up to you and fight that battle for others so that, you know, I don't need to listen to your views on bed sharing. But if you're out of it, you can happily go to your doctor and say, hey, you know what? I saw this. I heard about this on a podcast. And I think you should really look into taking this training and having this system in place for your clients. And, you know, it, it 
removes you from having them. Well, what are you doing? It's like, I don't have a baby anymore. So it doesn't even matter what I'm doing. But I think you need to educate yourself on this. And it's, it is easier when you're out of the fray to advocate often because you're not tired, you're not stressed, you're not terrified, you're not wondering what the heck is going on day to day. Um, You have the wherewithal to advocate in that way. I think that's such a great point too, because a lot of people will say to me, they're like, oh, um, you know, it was so great hanging out here, but like, I don't have a baby anymore. I'm not breastfeeding anymore. So I'm going to leave. And it's like, don't leave. No, don't (laughs) stay here and get the information and be that person who can, you know, who's been through it, who can like support people who are coming in to the parenting community and can, you know, everything that you're saying. You know, that you don't have to just, I'm not a breastfeeder anymore. So none of that applies to me anymore. No, this all, it's all connected and we can all continue to try to change this system. Exactly. And, you know, one other thing I wanted to touch, and I'm sorry, I'm going to just switch gears for a minute here because I think it's important too, when it comes to the research, one of the things I see endlessly, and I'm baffled by it, but when I hear about, you know, on Facebook, there are groups about safe infant sleep and everything, and they tend to be militant anti-bed sharing, um, about, and, and anti-bed sharing across all ages. It's just, you should never sleep with your baby. And this is something I want to dispel because even according to the piss poor evidence that we have, these studies, Mm -hmm. they still find that post four months, there's no increased risk, and some of them even find a decreased risk of SIDS with bed sharing Ooh. after four months of age. So even from a this quote-unquote evidence-based whatnot perspective, which isn't evidence-based because it's piss-poor evidence, but you, know, you work with what you got, I guess, um, really you're looking at a short period. Now, unfortunately, it's that period that really speaks to us as precocial mammals of wanting this constant proximity, this safety, this, this always being there. So at the very least, people should be co-sleeping in the form of having your baby in the same room right next to the bed with you and stuff during that time period. No one is advocating, put your baby in a separate room. And in fact, speaking of the sleep situations and what we're seeing in the research, that seems to raise the risk of SIDS is having mm-hmm. your baby in a separate room from you. So that whole nursery that you decorate and have made beautiful, it's a laundry hamper right now. So just accept that and move on from that and, and make sure your baby's in the room with you at the very least. But anyone who's trying to tell you that the evidence does not support bed sharing po- like forever is blithely unaware of anything to do with science regarding this. Mm. And I think that's really important to have in mind because there can be a ton of pressure. And I've met families where they have one-year-olds and they're terrified to bed share with them, even though there Uh may be needs and everything. And so it becomes this, ah, what do we, you know, I shouldn't, it's not safe. And you're going, at one year of age, you're more likely to get hurt yourself from the one-year-old kicking you and punching you in the face in their sleep than them having an issue. So, I mean, there's really not, you got nothing to worry about here. Um, provided again with a one-year-old, if you were blackout drunk, whatnot, yeah, that would not be safe because you're still bigger than them, could roll over onto them and, and, and cause harm. But again, we're talking about this responsible situation. So there is, you know, even at that point, if some people feel like, you know what, for my safety, I want to get through that four months and I can safely babies fit in a bassinet at that point, they can be right next to the bed, whatnot. Go for that. The other thing though, is always make sure if you're doing that, 
as we touched on earlier, when you are breastfeeding a baby back to sleep, it is very common for mothers who are, are nursing or chest feeding to fall asleep while they are doing so because the hormones do that. So even if you say, I am not bed sharing at this stage, if you are breastfeeding or chest feeding, you need to make sure that whatever environment you do that in, it is safe for you to fall asleep with your baby. So I always mm -hmm. say to families, I don't care what your plans are. Look at yeah. your bedding situation and make sure that when you bring that baby into bed to feed, assume you're going to fall asleep. Maybe you won't. And I hear people say all the time, oh, no, 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 I never felt it's hard for me to fall asleep. Yeah, you have not experienced the hormone <laughs> rush that comes with breastfeeding a baby yeah. or the overnight. exhaustion of new parenthood. Exactly. Coupled with being exhausted anyway. So do not just assume because, you know, assuming you're going to fall asleep doesn't harm you. It just allows you to take precautions. And you know what? If you are superhuman and you don't fall asleep ever, kudos to you. But I'm also scared about your ability to sleep otherwise. But that yeah. is, you know, great. You're fine. Has it harmed you to set up your bed in a way that would be safe if it happened? No, because well, we're not yeah. talking about major changes that you would have to undertake. So therefore, it's really just an insurance policy against what might happen. Hopefully it doesn't. But if it does, you know that you don't have to wake up and just either wake up to the worst or wake up and feel, oh my God, that can never happen again. And then you panic about what to do. Well, and that's how so many times people end up falling asleep in recliners, right? Mm, or in the yes. couch or something. These places that are so unsafe because it's like, I don't want a bed share. I'm totally fine. I'm just going to be in this chair. I don't fall asleep ever. And you know, then you're totally exhausted and you fall asleep and then your yeah. baby slips into the crack and... That's, the, that's what we're talking about, like safe versus unsafe. You're so much yeah. safer being in a safe bed. And this is actually, you asked earlier about the environments, and I can't believe I forgot to mention it. But yes, sleeping in a recliner or on a sofa are associated with high, high risks of mm -hmm. SIDS or suffocation, really. And it does. It, it is suffocation. Um, however, and this is the fascinating bit that I think goes, and I feel like this should be the take home message for everyone and why I advocate, you know, prepping for things is there is, and it's, it's small, but there's a case study that was done in research with Jim McKenna and Helen Ball in a supervised sleep lab where they have the bed, you know, parents go in to sleep overnight and they have the videography, which they're assessing what is naturalistic, how people go for sleep. Mm -hmm. And they have a sofa in there because they're there all night, right? And they have the mm -hmm. bed and TV, all that stuff. And the mother in one of these case studies intentionally chose to sleep on the sofa. And what they observed was when it was intentional, she structured it in a way that actually it looked safe for baby. Hmm. She made sure baby was not near this, the edge where a baby could go in. She positioned herself in that C position around the baby. There was, for whatever reason, the sofa was that thing. So perhaps more than anything, and we definitely need more research on this, it seems like the intentionality around your sleeping environment is so important because when we're intentional with what we're doing and it's not, we go to the sofa cause we're tired and we're going to try and nurse on the sofa to stay awake or nurse in the recliner mm -hmm. to stay awake. And then we don't, we become aware of the risks around us and we make modifications to minimize them. 
And that is so crucial, whatever the environment it is. And, you know, we do have to acknowledge that in some places, the sofa may be the only spot that a mother and baby can safely sleep in their in their house. If they have a partner who is in bed and a high risk of rolling over on the baby or drinks or smokes, this may feel like the safest option. And so I don't want to ever say, absolutely never, never get on the sofa, even though it's a very high risk when done unintentionally. And I mean, we're talking one of the highest risks possible mm-hmm. um, in terms of the numbers. But when done intentionally, there's at least initial evidence in terms of these case studies that maybe it can be done safely when parents are made aware of what are these risk factors? Where could baby fall within the cracks? How would I stop this? How would I position myself to protect my baby? And, you know, so that we can actually allow for a variety of circumstances to lead to safer sleep for everyone involved. That's a really great point. Yeah. Be, be intentional. Do the research and be intentional in creating a safe environment for you and your baby. Mm-hmm. And for breastfeeding, like we kind of touched on, I mean, it's really one of those things that if you're breastfeeding, you are probably going to end up bed sharing at some point. <laughs> it's even just part of the night. And it is, you know, we look at night feeds seem to really drive our supply. It's one of those factors, all those people telling you, no, 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 if they feed enough during the day, you're fine. We know that there is research that women who who night wean early tend to breastfeed for a shorter duration of time all around. And this is really important to remember that our babies are supposed to feed regularly overnight. This whole idea of no, they don't need it is just bullshit. Um, And maybe arguably you could say, yes, they eat enough, they'll grow. But that's not all that breastfeeding is offering or chest feeding. That's not all that it's offering. And so there's a lot there that you know, from the comfort, from regulation of the vagus nerve to all sorts of things from pain relief. We know that breast milk has pain relieving functions. And we know that that first, heck, two, three years filled with a lot of different ups and downs in terms of uh, growth spurts, teething, um, you know, whatever digestion issues when they start solids at the time, like all these things can be alleviated or at least ameliorated by having the breast milk. So there's a lot of reasons for kids to nurse overnight that we've just ignored because I think this medical model tells us you only look at growth and food intake as opposed to the holistic that this is part of a relationship that happens. And, um, you know, so our babies do expect that and our babies independent of that expect to be close to us. They expect to have that proximity met. Their needs for that are really, really strong because that signals to them that they are safe because our babies are born so immature that they they know almost at, at an innate level, it's not a cognitive level, but they know right. they're at risk if they're not close to a caregiver, that our job is to keep them safe from everything in, in the world outside. And we can't do that if they're apart from us. Right. It's not, it's not, it, this is not a trend. It's not, uh, you know, something that we think is cool in 2021. This is a biologically normal way for a baby to sleep. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just, you know, biologically normal. I would say it's 
almost necessary um, for their development to be close. Like we do, I think there's a reason we see that double the risk of SIDS when we put babies in their own room is that we're taxing that stress system because Mm. they don't expect to be alone. They don't expect, and that is really scary for them. And they may not have the wherewithal to call out to us to let us know in those early times, you know, and there's sleep differences in how, you know, the quality of sleep that babies have. Um, We often talk, there's, there's evidence that especially in the early days, babies who sleep alone fall into this much deeper sleep. And I know that sounds lovely, right? Deep sleep. Great. Right. But we actually know that falling into deep sleep in the patterns with infants is a physiological indication of stress. Yeah. So this is something that stresses our babies out. So sometimes when people say no, but if I put my baby in the crib away from me, they sleep longer. They sleep quote unquote better. That's actually not what's happening. That is an infant stress response to fall into that deeper sleep. And and so we, oh, sorry. So go ahead. No, go ahead. It's not safe. <laughs> I was just saying, so we want the deeper, the it's deeper not, sleep is exactly. not safe, right? <laughs> exactly. That deep sleep, it is one of those, I think it's one of the reasons why we see that independent risk for daycare is they get stressed, mm. they fall into the deep sleep. It becomes harder for that brain, especially at that two to four month period where, you know, as Dr. McKenna hypothesizes that 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 switch, well, it, it, it does happen, that switch from effortful to, or from automatic to effortful breathing. That is not a hypothesis. That's just a, a biological function. But if that's what's linked to SIDS is that, yeah, if you fall into that deep sleep, your brain's ability to remember to be online and do things. It's like when you learn to drive. And I think it's probably a good analogy. When you're learning to drive, it's not automatic yet. Right. And so if you think about it, you need the safe environment to test it out. And in those safe environments, you might be a little your body might be a little off on edge or what it's doing, but that's fine. But if you throw in a big stressor, you are not driving safely at all. And it is highly stressful. And that's with us having cognitive awareness, everything. When you think about the the baby system moving from this autonomic process towards this effortful one, and they're put under intense stress, that's going to make it even harder for that effortful system to work, right? Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. So I think that's probably a good analogy for it. And so I think when we, we think about babies at this time, I mean, that need for proximity is just, it's so paramount. And, you know, there's a really interesting study that I saw get cited the other day for, oh, drove me nuts, but they were saying, see, look, bed sharing causes stressful sleep. And in the study, what they did is they assessed regular bed sharers and non-regular bed sharers for sleep. And yes, the regular bed sharers, when they assessed their sleep, showed this stressful pattern of sleep. What whoever cited this didn't get was that they were assessing the regular bed sharers sleeping solitarily. So these are kids that are used to sleeping with the parent. They've separated them now and they see this stressful sleep pattern. So it's uh, not well, that, yeah. <laughs> right? Oh You're just what going, a ridiculous <laughs> study. What? So you sit there going, oh my Lord, why? But this is, you know, and, and too often, and I think it's one of the biggest problems in academia with studies being behind a paywall, people get abstracts. Oh. And let's be honest, there's a lot of 
parents in these science groups and whatnot who liken themselves to knowing everything because they read the abstracts. And you really, really can't do that, folks. It is, there is so much. And, you know, if you're interested in a study, one little tip is that most researchers, if you send them an email saying, hey, could I get a copy of your paper? I'd say 98% of the time, they're going to be like, sure, here you go. Enjoy. They are able to do that. It does mean that extra step. But if you're going to be going around spouting evidence of something because you saw it based on an abstract, you really should be reading the whole paper first. Just a little, you know, side note on science (laughs) there. Take the time. Exactly. And so, you know, the other side to this is that these babies that didn't bed share regularly did seem at this age, and this was an older age, I think it was can't even remember actually to be perfectly honest, but I think it was closer to a year. Um, They had developed a sleep pattern that wasn't as stressful being separated. Right. And so we know that does happen over time. We don't know how long it takes. We don't know other repercussions. We don't know the breastfeeding, all that other stuff that goes along with it. But we do know that when babies first separate in sleep, as we see in infancy too, in early infancy, it is stressful and it leads to stressful sleep. So we want to make sure that our babies, especially in these young periods, are close to us safely bed sharing if you want to, and it works for you and you have the resources to do it, if not in a co-sleeping arrangement with your baby next to the bed for you during that time. And then to expect that when you do more move, pardon me, towards more solitary sleep, that will be stressful for our babies. Um, And it will be for a period. How long that period is, we just don't know. I have a kid who's almost seven who sleeps with me. And when he tries to experiment sleeping on his own, he doesn't sleep very well. Yeah. And he ends up back in my bed. He he, like he chooses. He's almost seven. So he can choose. Like, I'm going to try to sleep in my bunk bed today. Okay. And he wakes up sooner than he would. He doesn't wake up really when he's next to me. When he's in there, he wakes up and he's like, where I am coming back in here. Oh, okay. And that's I mean, fine. I don't, you know, know, some people want, yeah, it's fine with me. And some people want to like try to push it and I don't have the energy, but. Exactly. Right. It's, I always call it lazy parenting <laughs> that care. I do. It's yeah. just, right. <laughs> and I, I'll be honest, I have a five-year-old and 10-year-old. We bed share. We have the family bed and it's been a, a conscious choice that we're quite happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't really bother us, but everyone sleeps better this way. And, you know, my daughter has a room, has a bed in it. She can use it if she wants to. Um, If she has a sleepover, she might have a friend. You know what I mean? Her and a friend might go in and do that. But that's, you know, that idea of shared sleep. And this is something that I think gets lost in all this this bed sharing. We need to teach our kids to sleep alone, uh, which is also the anti. I think part of the bed sharing debate is, like I said, I don't trust that it's solely about safety. Mm -hmm. We have a real push in our society to get kids and everyone sleeping independently. And that is contrary to not just baby norms, but human norms. We are a social species. We are social primates, um, social mammals. We expect to sleep together because that group cohesion keeps us safe. And so when we look at hunter-gatherer societies, indigenous groups, shared sleep is the norm. And, you know, depending on the culture, really the youngest you see kids moving away from bed sharing with parents is around two to three years of age. And in those cultures, they don't move to solitary sleep. They move to sleeping with other kids. 
is mm. what happens mm. in many of them. So it's not a shift of you're now on your own. It's just a different peer group to sleep with. And in others where we see a bit more of, of this longer term bed sharing, you know, there's many Asian cultures that still have the bed the room where everyone sleeps up through high school and beyond. Like it's just, it's the sleep room is what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in hunter gatherer societies where there is a separation, um, eventually for boys, it tends to be around age eight that they find their own little spot. Again, it's still social sleep because the whole tribe will often sleep in a similar location around the fire, but they'll find their own spot kind of further away from parents. And for girls, it's adolescents, it's teenagers, it's 12, 13, 14 years of age. Um, So this idea of this early push for independence doesn't mirror our evolutionary history. And it doesn't mirror, you know, many cultures have maintained that evolutionary history in terms of sleep going forward. And that's what has been missing. We've we've deviated from it for, I would say, capitalist and other Mm -hmm. reasons. And um, but that's not a biological norm. It's not a species expectant behavior. And so I hear people worry about a kid. Oh, the kid's going to be in my room forever. They really won't, but it may be a longer time if you're open to it. But also if you're not, there are ways to facilitate it later when your child has the cognitive capacity to cope with some of that stress and you have the ability to talk to them about this transition and this change so that you can alleviate that fear and the anxiety that they will experience upon this separation whenever it happens. Yeah. And we go through it because I have Jack is going to be, like I said, 10 and he has been in his bunk for, I don't know, like a year and a half, maybe. And he mm-hmm. chose to do that. And I was shocked, actually. I was like, really? Because he's always <laughs> been so, you know, in, you know, into the bed and he breastfed until he was six and a half. And um, I was like, he's going to be in this bed for a while. And he actually gets up really early. And he mm. was tired of being woken up at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so he, Siblings, you know, he, they change it all. <laughs> I know. And so he pushed, he decided that he was going to kind of push through that nervousness about getting through his, you know, into his own bed. And he was just like, I'm going to do it. And sometimes we, you know, sometimes my husband will actually go in there and sleep on the bottom bunk because he mm-hmm. wants somebody in there. Um, but yeah, they do, you know, they work it out. Exactly. When they can and he, make decisions, they do it. And he had that capacity to understand, I'm going to feel a little stressed, but I know someone's there. I can ask for someone to join me. There's a whole, when communication increases, there is so much more ability for us to meet those needs in different ways. It doesn't have to be just that, that shared sleep space. But when our kids are younger, they often don't well, they can't communicate as well. We know something may be wrong, but you know, especially when it comes to fear and anxiety, it usually just manifests as crying or distress. And right. we may not even know why. Sometimes, you know, many of us who have older kids have experienced that time that our kids become afraid of something that is so bizarre, we don't understand what, right? Like suddenly there's a book that they're like, don't even bring that near me. And oh, yeah, yeah. They don't understand why. And so if we think that they can't even fathom that level of something they're afraid of there, how are they going to understand that they are safe when separated from the people that keep them safe? And Mm -hmm. we have to expect that they can't. And so if we wait till they're older, then it really does help 
build that up, that we're able to kind of work with it and say, okay, let's talk about how you're safe. Let's come up with strategies to feel safe and know that you can still be there, that they will feel more adept because you can say to them, hey, if you find this too much, just come on back in, come join us for a night and we'll, you know, you can try it another night. And they're old enough to understand that. And that is such a difference in helping them learn, I think, these, you know, we all talk about self-soothing and I know that's a big fucking shit show when it comes to part of my language, Um, sleep training, because everyone claims that, oh, you leave a baby to be stressed out on their own. They're totally going to learn to manage that. No, they're not. That's not how we learn skills. I mean, it's just unfathomable. It's a whole other topic. But when we have, you know, when our kids know that we're there for them, and they're able to have that communication, we can build those emotion regulation skills. But it happens first through co-regulation, which is that proximity and everything. And then through active helping them teach and learn, they have to have the cognitive capacity to take that information in. And if they don't, they're not going to learn it appropriately. It's as simple as that. I think that I came up with our next topic for the next time you come (laughs) to our podcast when you when you are then president of the three timers club we could talk about self-soothing oh god Uh, yeah i i will get on that because i have had recently some uh some stuff on there that is um very very frustrating to say the least yeah it's such an infuriating conversation it really is and it's um and the problem is you hear it from i feel people that should know better and you know i i hear You know, whenever I hear of like a psychologist talking about it, especially like, a you know, people that work with clients. So whether it's, you know, counseling, clinical, whatever, um, I always just think I'm like, so if you have a client come in who's really upset about something, is your treatment that you just walk out of the room and leave them alone for an hour (laughs) and then you bill them? You're like, is that that what happens there? And of course it's not. That's not, you know, it's not how we treat distress, but somehow with kids, we expect something different. So yes, happy to talk about it. save extra long for that one too. yeah <laughs> and i will apologize in advance for all the swears that will come out on that one <laughs> it's okay it's called badass for a reason we don't care about the language i know people are like i can't believe that you curse i'm like the pot it's called the badass breastfeeder like what and where did you think you were I know. I get it too. People are like, you swear? I'm like, far more than I should. But it's it's hard not to. It's hard not to, especially with these topics. Right? Like we're surrounded by a culture that almost is forcing. I'm just going to blame. I'm not going to take any personal responsibility for my swearing. I'm just going to blame (laughs) the culture around me. (laughs) It's true though. So Tracy, where can people find you? Because I know everyone wants to follow you. If you're not already following her, you need to find her at where can we find you? So the website itself is evolutionaryparenting.com. And there's blogs, resources, all that fun stuff for everyone. Um, I am on Facebook a bit. I have someone else, Amy, that helps run the page because I'm not not super great at it. Um, I have a, a secondary page, Tracy Castle's PhD, that is a bit more sleep support based as opposed to just science around parenting, which is more of awesome. a VP. 
I have joined Instagram. I joined a couple months ago and I think I'm getting it. My first mm-hmm. week was a bit of a shit show. And I think I shared things that looked like Picasso paintings and then like <laughs> repeatedly shared other people's posts 10 million times in a row without meaning to because I didn't <laughs> understand the platform. But I think I've got it down now. So I have not had many mistakes in a while. So you can find me there. It's under at Tracy Castles, PhD. Uh, and Castles is C-A-S-S-E-L-S. It's not like a castle. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, oh, I'm on Twitter, but I use that just personally. It's not really kind of for my stuff, yeah. but that's just, I. It, it's an outlet for politics and it's a fun one. So oh, um, yes. yeah, right. There's that. And I have a podcast now, which, which you yes. are coming on. Yes. Yes. I have got you now. Yes. Which I am very excited about. So you can come listen to Abby talk to me about breastfeeding advocacy and all these other issues that will get her to swear. So yeah. it's <laughs> you. We are scheduled for March and I just started it at the end. Well, it, it started a couple of years ago. No, like four years ago, I did one episode. Then two years later, I did one. <sighs> and I finally found the rhythm here. But um, yeah, it is the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. It's on all of these these spots where you go. And basically, it's a lot of interviews with people who, both researchers who are doing this research. So I've had already some interviews with people that do sleep training, which is interesting. I've got to stop doing that because it makes me angry. Um, <laughs> but also others that do fascinating research. So this week's episode that just came out, uh, recently was with Dr. Megan Azad. And I guess this will date whenever we actually spoke about this as to when it goes live. But um, Megan Azad, who is a researcher at the University of Manitoba, and she researched the effects of artificial sweetener use in pregnancy on offspring. So she's looked oh, at the gut microbiota. She's amazing. Wow. Her, I, I just am in awe of her work. And I have my next podcast that I'm recording is, I'm going to pronounce it wrong because all these names, but I think it's Sheeran. Sharn, Sharn, you know, those Gaelic Welsh names that you just can't pronounce, uh-huh. oh, but I'm uh-huh. going to ask her, right? Holcro, who is at, uh, in New Zealand at the University of Ontega. She's a bioarchaeologist. So she puts it, she studies dead babies to understand parenting practices. And oh I am right. Like, it's just so cool. So I have a lot of those. And then I have people like Abby to come on to talk about more of this advocacy side of things. So, um, please do check it out. I am, I'm loving it because I'm getting a chance to go back. And I don't know about you, Abby, but I always feel like, oh, in another life, I wish I'd studied that or in another uh-huh. life, I wish I'd gone back and done this. And it's allowed me to do that um, in so many ways. And it's been so lovely. Like I had Greer uh, Kirschenbaum, who is the world's first neuroscientist doula on a few weeks ago. And she just talked about the brain development in pregnancy and beyond. And it's just, it's so fascinating to hear exactly what's going on. So yeah, it's that, that's my new exciting project that I'm working awesome. on this year. So please do so check, check that all out. that out. And Apple at badassbreastfeedingpodcast.com, y'all, we can put, we'll have all these direct links where you can just click through and follow, follow and listen, listen. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And then come and listen to Abby in March when it's done there. Yeah. I'll share that around. Definitely. Exactly. So I'm excited for that. So, yeah. So thank you so much for having me and thank Thank you for opening up the discussion on sleep because it's so nice. Too often I see breastfeeding separated from sleep and I really don't think you can do that. So many sleep issues are intertwined with the breastfeeding relationship. And, um, it's so nice to have that acknowledged on such a big platform like you have. Yeah. We love, we love, we love the sleep conversation. And I agree. I feel like it's so intertwined 
that they have to go together. They have to. They, yeah, you can't let that one. They you can't breastfeed the way you really probably want to without accepting some changes mm. in the sleep. Like that whole solitary sleep and breastfeeding really is hard. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's hard to manage. So we have to have these discussions for families because it's important to what they want to gain from that breastfeeding relationship as well. Yeah. Well, thank you again so, so much. And we can't wait to find out what topic we're going to discuss next time you're here. I, well, I think it's self-soothing now. You've just yeah. convinced right, me that's got to be decided. <laughs> there we go. It's decided. And you we're guys, done. if you have any suggestions or anything that you want to hear about, let us know and uh, we'll get it all together. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Abby. Abby.